Hey, so there's this guy. His name is Andrew Oakley. Now, Andrew Oakley, um, middle-aged guy, he and his wife, Philippe, they were uh, at a family reunion or family get-together, and they were doing the ice bucket challenge. You remember when that was kind of a big deal about a year ago or so? It was people were taking the big things of ice, dumping it on themselves. It was to raise money and to raise awareness for ALS, or also called Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, that, he and his, his wife are doing the ice bucket challenge, and one of his family members videotaped it or, or took pictures of it. And they posted on Facebook, and they, they tagged Uncle Andrew and Aunt Philippe, which was cool because that's how, that's how the word gets out and people see it. Um, it kind of went sideways, though, when uh, Uncle Andrew was tagged with his wife, Philippe, and it was seen on Facebook by Andrew's other wife. When I say other wife, I don't mean like his former wife. I mean like his first wife that he was married to when he married his second wife, Philippe, he's what you call a bigamist, someone who has two families and they don't know about each other. So this happened in England. Well, the story gets kind of crazier. So he's married to two different ladies. Well, his family all goes to the second wedding and they're all pumped. They're excited for him. He had gone so far as forging divorce documents and showed them to all of his family that he had divorced his first wife, Michelle, which he really hadn't. He'd faked it. They all came to the wedding. They celebrated. His family has no clue. What he told his first wife, Michelle, because you go, well, how do you do that? How do you live with two families and they not know each other? He told his first wife that he'd gotten a new job and with his new job, uh, the company was working on a legal case dealing with fraud and that he was going to be put into the witness protection plan to protect him and, his, and, and some of his uh, workmates so he wouldn't be home as often because it was, it was dangerous because there were some bad guys that they were you know, building this fraud case against that might come and try to kill him. So he's like, peace out. I'll see you on the weekends. And I guess he told his other wife, you know, I'm going to be traveling for work on the weekends. And so he bounces back and forth between two families. This guy is so low rent that his wife, Michelle, has his baby. And he showed up to the birth five hours late, cut the umbilical cord and told her, I've got to go. The police are downstairs take, ready to take me back to the safe house and disappears. Now, that's a little bit shocking of a story. If you get on like Yahoo News, I mean, there's stories like that that happen every day. We're almost desensitized to it. So I want you to think for a minute, like, like if you were this, this lady, Michelle, okay, put yourself in her shoes for a minute. She gets up one morning and she's logged on to Facebook to type something out or she's on there like because she, she took a picture of what she had for breakfast and she wants to post it, you know, whatever she's doing on Facebook. And imagine, you know, her world is as normal as your morning was this morning when you went to school. Nothing crazy, nothing outside of, uh, of the realm of what was, was natural. And all of a sudden, a picture comes up, and she's like, well, that looks like my husband. And, and, and Uncle Andrew has the same name as my husband. And she clicks on it, and she's looking at it going, is that him? Like, how, how does, that doesn't make sense. She goes, and she delves a little bit deeper and found the wedding pictures. Of course, there's close-ups of them and discovers that her family has been lied to for several years. Imagine if your morning started that way, and all of a sudden by lunchtime, everything you believed had unraveled because you had been deceived in such a way that you felt like your entire life was a lie. 
Now, when you hear a story like that, and you put yourself in the shoes of a woman like Michelle, you would agree with me when I say this, that truth, truth matters. Truth has great ramifications. Being deceitful, lying, has great ramifications. And it's not just in the big things like in this story with Andrew and, and his wives. It's in the small things too. In fact, Jesus said that if you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the big things. What, what Jesus knew is this. If you say, hey, from a truth standpoint, I would never lie to my wife and, and marry someone else. You know, most of us would probably agree we wouldn't do that. But if you go, you know what? I might lie to my teacher. I might lie to my parents and some small things that aren't that big a deal. What Jesus knows is this. You create a habit or you create in your mind that it's okay to let your integrity slide for something small because it conveniences you, it benefits you. Jesus knows that as you continue to do that, at one point in your life, something big will come about that's inconvenient. Something big in your life is going to come out that's going to be challenging. And you'll be so accustomed to lying in the small things of letting truth go by the wayside that you'll, you'll fudge the truth in the big things. And so truth matters in, in, in the big things and it matters in the small things. What's, what's hard for us sometimes is wrapping our mind around what truth means. Like truth is one of those words, I think your English teachers probably do this, mine did. I, I, I bet it's probably, it goes through the years. Your teacher ever say this, like, you've got to define a word, but you, you, can't, you can't use the word to define it? You know, you got, and, and you're like, truth is one of those. You're like, how do you define truth? And you're like, well, it's, it's, it's what's true. You can't, you can't define it that way, right? But he's like, how do you do that? Here's, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about truth. Truth is something that conforms to reality. Now, when we say that, we have to understand what reality is, actual reality, because some of us have a perception of reality. We think something is real. We think something is, exists in the way that we want it to, but it doesn't really. So truth is what conforms or matches up with actual reality. And we're living in a world that for the last, I mean, maybe it's been going on for a long time. But I know for at least the last 30 years, we start seeing people take things that are true, that conform to reality, and we start bending them. We start trying to, to, to reshape them or reform them so that they will match our perceived reality rather than what is actual reality. Let me give you an example. So, well, say a couple years ago, several years ago, I taught at a Christian high school that was tagged to the church I was serving in. And so I would teach a Bible class every, every semester for juniors and seniors. And, and we were coming near the end of the, the semester, kind of like, you know, finals week coming up, which you guys will have, in, you know, in a month or so. And I had a guy in my class who was a senior. And in that school, to graduate, you had to have a certain number of Bible credits. That was what was put into the graduation requirements to have a high school diploma. You have to have however many classes of Bible. And nobody or very few people took, like, extra Bible just because they wanted to love Jesus more. I mean, you took the classes you had to take. And so I've got this guy, he's a senior, he's in my class, and, and we're coming near the end of the, the semester, and he's, he's borderline passing this class. If he doesn't pass this class, he's not going to graduate high school because he failed contemporary Christian issues or Christian home and family or whatever the class was that I was teaching at the time. So we're coming up, and we've got finals like on Tuesday, and I've got to turn in grades on Wednesday. Now, at this time, remember, I'm not really a, a teacher. I'm a youth minister. I just teach one class. And so I've got to give a final, and then I've got to grade like, you know, 20 finals and overnight. And I'll be really honest, I didn't want to. Um, that's a lot of work. And so I told the class, I said, listen, here's your grade. If, 
If you're okay with this being your final grade, you don't have to take the final. You're exempt. If you want to take the final, you can, but whatever your grade is on it is going to count. So, I, you know, I was looking at the kid who had like an 88 that wanted like the A, and I told him, hey, I'll give you the final, but if you go in the final 88 and you make a 70 on it, your, your grade's going to be like an 83. You know, it's going to drop your grade. If I have to grade it, it's counting. So who wants the final? Like three kids do. Well, this, this guy sits in the back, back left corner back over here. He's not passing. He's got to take the final. So he raises his hand. So here's what I do. I tell him, like, I'm like, dang it. I didn't really want to give a final. I, I hadn't prepared one. So I start writing out. Here's what a study guide. Here's what you need to know for the final. I write it all out. I go across the hallway. I photocopy it. I hand it to him. Here's the handwritten study guide. I take that home, and I use that to write the final. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's what was about to happen. Come in the next day, pass out the final, pass out to this guy. He's got like, you know, I don't know what you had to pass. He's got like a 66 in the class. Ten minutes into the final, he comes up, he turns in, and I'm like, whoa, that's fast <laughs> for somebody who's hanging with a 66. And I go, man, are you done already? And he looks at me, and he goes, he goes, I, I didn't study. And I'm like, are you serious? So I turn, he's got like two answers. It's like, you know, a zero, pretty you know, close to it. So his grade goes from like a 66 to like a 59. And I'm like, man, what a shame that this kid is not going to graduate high school because of his work ethic. Two or three days go by, sitting at high school graduation. I'm in the back row. I'm watching. People are coming up. They're calling names. And lo and behold, they call this kid's name. And he walks across the stage, shakes a hand, gets a diploma, and walks on down. I remember sitting there going, Wow truth was skewed because reality says reality was that he did not accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish in order to be a high school graduate but people changed it to fit their perceived reality we want him to make it it's kind of sad that he's not going to graduate because of a bible class for whatever reason they took truth and bent it and reshaped it so that it looked like it was real when it wasn't now here's how truth matters in reality, I don't know what happened to the guy, but he's going to go apply for a job one day. And it's between him and somebody else, and he's going to get hired. And he may not have if the person he was up against had a high school diploma and he didn't. And so the person who actually did the work isn't going to get hired. This guy did. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to get that job, and they're going to figure out that he doesn't finish, that he quits. And now the company is going to be out of luck because they hired a guy that couldn't finish. And a person who should have gotten the job isn't. Truth matters. It ends up hurting people. But we are good at taking truth and bending it to fit what we want it to fit. And sometimes there's huge ramifications, especially when your character's assaulted. You don't have to raise your hand. Probably most of you in here. You ever had somebody that said something about you that wasn't true? And your reputation was tarnished, your character was tarnished, and people believed it? And, and, and the rumor was spread or something was said? That hurt, right? Because you went, that's not me. And now everybody thinks that's me, that rep representation of me. It's not true. There's three guys. Uh, this is 1981, a guy named Raymond Moore, a guy named William Vasquez, and a guy named Amari Villa Villalobo. They lived in Brooklyn, New York, and they were both arrested and charged for arson and six counts of murder. So what happened is there's an apartment building in Brooklyn that burns down. Um, and the, the fire marshal went, and there's a lady inside with her five kids. They died in the, in the fire. The fire marshal goes, and he says, hey, there were multiple accelerant points, which means probably arson. It was lit purposefully. And the building owner, 
The lady who owned it, she said, I saw these three men leaving the building minutes before the fire started. So they get arrested. Now, they all three had alibis from their wives that said, no, they were with me. But it was their wives' word up against an eyewitness at the scene of the crime and the, and the fire marshal's arson report. So these guys get arrested. They go to jail for 25 years. One of the guys dies in prison. Another one, you can see the guy kind of in the back in the, in the black shirt that has the glasses. He's holding a cane. He got glaucoma while he was in prison and didn't get the medical care he needed and ended up going blind. And 25 years later, they get out after serving their time. And one of these two gentlemen that survived decides to kind of go into like victim's advocacy. He's like, hey, I, we were innocent. We didn't do it. And he starts kind of uh, doing his own research and, and find out things. Well, two things come up. They found out later that 25 years later, science has changed. And the, the fire marshal's report that said there were multiple accelerant points turned out to be used. There was bad science that used that. And they came back and they said, actually, there wasn't. And then the lady, the eyewitness, the building owner, on her deathbed confessed that she made up the story so that she could get the insurance money. That sucks, right? One guy died in prison, didn't die with his family. Another guy's blind for the rest of his life. And their character, their reputation, for 25 years, their friends and family looked at them and, and, and thought of them as murderers, that they killed five children in a mom. For 25 years, their character was tarnished in that way. That's terrible. But what we're talking about tonight, and we're about to get into 2 Timothy, is this. The character of God, his reputation, is being attacked and tarnished right now. You see... We live our lives, you and I, we live our lives based on how we understand the character of God. What, what you believe about God determines how you live. If you're an atheist, if you go, I don't believe God exists, I just came tonight because a friend came and, you, you know, you're probably asleep at this point, you know, of the night. But if you're still awake, you might go, hey, God doesn't exist. I don't believe that there is any supernatural being. I don't believe that there is any morality that, 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 that is, is larger than I am. And you go, God doesn't exist, therefore I determine what's right and wrong, or my country does. But if you, if you, if you believe in God, what you believe about him affects you. Let me give you an example. If you've done something wrong, let's say you've made a mistake, maybe you blew it really bad. You know, who knows what it was? You, you went to a party, you used some drugs you should have never used, you've, you've been sexually intimate with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, you know, maybe some, some things that you go, man, I don't want anybody in this room to know about because that, that would be shameful to me. And you haven't forgiven yourself. You're, you're carrying around the guilt, and you're, I'm assuming you're a believer in this story. You're carrying around the guilt and the shame of that. You know what that means? That, that, that means literally you might believe it up here, but you don't believe in your heart that God actually forgives. You don't believe that God's characters are forgiving God. Because if God, who you offended by your sins, says, hey, you're a believer, I forgive you, and you go, I can't forgive myself, what you're saying is that can't be true. I don't believe that about God. If you believe that Jesus died on the, died on the cross for your sins, that you were guilty and that he was innocent, and that he was whipped and nailed to a cross and he died so that your sins could be punished so that a just God could deliver wrath on the sin. And you believe that Jesus died for you and gave grace to you. That Jesus said, I love you so much, I will give up everything so that you can have a relationship with God. You, if you believe that about the character of God, you find it very difficult not to be graceful to other people, right? I mean, how do you hold a grudge against somebody 
when Jesus, God has already forgiven you of everything. He doesn't hold a grudge. But if you're holding grudges against people, you can't be graceful with people. It's because you don't really believe in grace. I mean, you, you don't. It might be a head knowledge. I, the Bible says, but I don't really believe that God pours out favor onto me. So what we believe about God's character and who he is affects the way we live. And so if we believe things that are untrue about God, it causes us to live a life that isn't untrue. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me kind of paint the picture here. Um, who wrote the book 2 Timothy? Who's a Bible scholar in here? Who knows it? Paul, right, it was not Timothy. Uh, a guy named Paul writes it. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. He, he, he understands the Old Testament better than anybody in this room. Paul knows more about the Old Testament than all of us in this room combined. I mean, he's, he's, he is brilliant. He's so much uh, in love with God that he sees Christians as the enemy. Because he doesn't believe, his name's Saul at the time, he doesn't believe that Jesus is really the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the king. And so as, as these people are talking about Christianity, Saul goes out, and as a, as a Jewish leader, he actually goes out and tries to have Christians killed. Well, along the way, one time he's going to Damascus to, to hunt down some Christians, the resurrected Jesus appears to him, blinds him, and Paul has this, this life-changing experience where he meets Jesus. Jesus changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he becomes the great missionary. He writes 13 of your 27 New Testament books. They're letters to people. He goes all around the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches, telling people about Jesus. And we pick up the story, the story, the letter. He's writing to a young guy, a pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. And we know that he's written him at least two different letters. And Timothy's a young guy trying to pastor a church, and he's living in this culture, Timothy is, where, where people are teaching things about God and about the character of God that, that aren't true. There's a group of people called the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics believe is this. They believe that, that uh, the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. And those two things cannot come to, to be. So there's two groups of Gnostics. And these people are going to Timothy's church. They call themselves believers. But they just have this skewed theology, this skewed truth. And so some of them teach since the material world is evil and the spiritual is good. This is what they say. They go, well, Jesus... Jesus wasn't actually, you couldn't reach out and touch him because Jesus was spirit. He wasn't flesh. And so Jesus was more like a ghost. If you walked up and you were like, high five, Jesus, you know, you'd, you'd fall through because he wasn't real. But there's another group of people who are like, ah, that doesn't really, we, don't, we know people who like met him. That, that, that can't be true. So you have this other group of Gnostics who they said, well, here's what really happened then. Jesus was just a man, but the spirit of God came on him at his baptism and then left at the cross. Jesus wasn't really God. He was flesh. He was just a person. Just the Spirit of God came and taught him. And so all of these different ideas, plus some, which I'll tell you about in a minute, are going through the church. And Paul's writing Timothy a letter. And, and the, the, the gist of the letter, there's a lot of stuff in here, but he's saying this, truth matters. He's going, Timothy, you've got to stick to what is true about the character of God because that affects the way you live. So we're going to look at three verses. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12. Verse 12 kind of picks up halfway through a sentence, so just go to the next full sentence. I'm just going to read you three verses, then we're going to walk through them, and then we'll be done. Timothy, Paul says this. He says, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit 
entrusted to you. So go back to verse 12. We're just going to walk through these. Paul starts off and he says this. He says, listen, Timothy, I want you to know this. I am not ashamed. Now, why does that matter? Because when Paul's writing this letter, Paul is in prison. He's in jail and he's not getting out. And he's writing Timothy's letter. And what Timothy's up against is, and you'll read this in the last, if you read all of chapter one, you'll see some names of some people that were influencers at the time. They've turned their back against Paul. And so what's happening in this church is, is people are going, don't listen to Paul. What Paul. Paul's talking to you about Jesus and Paul's like a radical. Paul says you can't do this if you want to love, if you want to follow God and you should do those. And those are hard teachings. Paul's kind of crazy. And what they're doing is they're going, why would you believe him anyway? He's a criminal. He's in jail. Do you want to believe a, a criminal who teaches you hard things? Or do you want to believe us? We're not in jail and look, life is good for us. And so Timothy's caught trying to pastor this church where people are like, we don't know what to believe. And Paul says, listen, I am not ashamed to be in prison. I'm not ashamed that I stood up for what was right. I stood up for Jesus. I stood up for the gospel and I got in prison for it. I, I'm okay with that. And he tells us why. He says, why? Because I'm convinced, I fully believe that God's promise, the gospel, that I'm going to have heaven one day, that one day God's going to look at me and go, well done, Paul. You were a good and faithful service. I'm convinced that God is going to deliver on his promise, and so I don't care what anybody else says. These guys are saying this is true, and it's not. They're conforming truth. They're bending truth to match what the lifestyle they want to live. I'm going to tell you that it's wrong. It's not, it is not the way to fulfilling life, and I don't care if they believe me or not. I don't care if they leave me in prison because truth matters, and I'll go to prison for it. I'll die in prison for it. I'll be ridiculed for it. I'll let everybody make fun of me for it. I'll, I'll have no friends for it because truth matters more than any of those things. And then in verse 13, he says this. This is heavy stuff. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Here's what Paul says. He says, Timothy, you want to know what it's like to walk with Jesus? Do what I do. Would you be comfortable enough to tell a friend that? Like one of your friends that goes, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? Could you look at them and go, just do everything I do and Jesus will be pleased with you. Hello, right? <laughs> Paul's, yeah, we're like, oh, do everything that he does. You know, Paul says, follow me. And he gives this, this phrase, he says, and the sound words, the doctrine, the teaching, the truth, follow it. Do what I do. It's not just about being not ashamed. Timothy, you gotta be willing to, to, to obey what God says. Now, here's, here's the difficulty. You and I, and you more than me, are living in a world that's bending truth. The, a junior high and a high school is full of messages that you're getting that are taking actual truth and bending it to make it look like it fits a, a reality when it's not, it's not actual reality. Now, let me, let me kind of tell you, we're in the same spot here, Timothy and us. In Paul's day, I mean, he's got these people that are saying different things about Jesus. The, the early church in Corinth, Paul has let, write some letters. Here's what's happened in their churches. There's a guy in the church in Corinth who's having a relationship. You know what I mean by relationship? Having sex with his mother-in-law or his stepmother. We're not sure which. But, but that's happening in the church. Not like, not like, not like lost people. people far, like there's people in the church and Paul writes his letter and he's like, listen, everybody. 
that guy and his stepmom or that guy and his mother-in-law, they're like, mm-hmm, no, are you crazy? Stop it. And the church was like, what? Because you know what? They didn't care because they didn't see sex through truthful lenses. There's another group of people that Paul writes that they're, they're taking the Lord's Supper. You know what the Lord's Supper is? We break the bread to remember Jesus' broken body. They drink the wine to remember Jesus' poured out blood. And, and Paul writes to address this issue in the church of people who are going to the Lord's Supper with the wine and they're getting drunk. They're like, yes, the blood of Jesus. Hand me another one. I need a little more blood of Jesus. Right? You know, and Paul's like, you're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So, I mean, they've got people that are going, hey, it's no big deal. And Paul goes, truth matters. God has, has, has specific things that he wants you to know about alcohol, about sex. And 2,000 years later, you're living in a school, you're, you're living in a culture that is taking God's truth that's defined by his character and bending it to make it sound okay. I, I'll just tell you right now, I'm just very upfront with you. The scripture teaches us very clearly the way God's character and the way he made the world is this. He says, don't get drunk. And people take that and they go, that's no big deal. Truth is, drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is assault on the character of God. And people go, oh, it's not that big a deal. But you know, this is true. People go the other direction. Sometimes they're called Baptists. And they go, oh, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says alcohol is evil. If you think about it, you will go to hell. You know, Scripture doesn't teach that either. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you need to have a little wine. So what do you do when people go, all alcohol is evil? Well, Paul is working with truth. Alcohol is not evil. You can't have it because God's truth says that you obey the laws of the authorities, and the authorities say that you have to be 21. So Friday night, if you go out to the party and you go, hey, it's no big deal, what you've done is taken God's eternal truth that's a picture of his character and you've bent it to your reality. That's just, that's just what it, that is truth. And when you turn 21, you can drink and be in right relationship with God. But when you cross that line, you get, you get drunk, you will have bent truth for your perceived reality rather than true reality. Sex, it's the same thing. I mean, most of you in here know somebody who's in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. I mean, that's not like newsflash. I mean, right? I mean, and don't point if they're in here. But here's the deal. God says sexuality, God's character uh, is is about integrity, and God is an intimate God. And he says, hey, you want to have the deepest, realest, most intimate, most God-fulfilling, best relationship you'll ever have. Here's how it works. Get married to one person, and when you experience sex with them, you will never have any other questions about anybody else. You'll never have questions in, 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 in how much they care about you, in intimacy, things like that. That's how it's supposed to work. But what we do is we go, man, I've seen a lot of, of videos on the computer. I've got a lot of friends who are doing it. I've got hormones going crazy. And you know what? My reality says that it's going to be good, so I'm going to take truth, and I'm going to bend it to my reality, and it breaks. Do you live in a world that tells you messages about alcohol? It tells you messages about sex? It tells you messages about money? It tells you messages about marriage? It tells you messages about divorce? It tells you messages about homosexuality? Hello? It tells you messages about abortion? 
tells you messages about a lot of things where culture says God's truth is a little bit too hard to stomach, so let's bend it to fit our perceived reality. And you're living in a world that tries to, I want you to know, truth matters. Here's what happens. Talking to a guy today, actually this afternoon, uh, hadn't seen him in years, just came by the office. Uh, he is homosexual, gay. Now, in trying to follow Jesus, he's been married, he's had multiple kids, and, and he has come back and said, listen, he's, he's not a practicing homosexual, but he says, hey, I will always have this, I will always have this struggle, I always have this tension, the same-sex attraction, and I'm trying to follow Jesus, and as I try to follow Jesus, I'm trying to do what Jesus would have me do, but he lives in a culture that says this, you were made that way. And so here's truth of what the scripture says that homosexuality is wrong. That, that's going to offend some of you. It's going to bother some of you because you live in a world that's taken the truth that God has defined in his word that matches his character and it's bent it to our culture to go, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter like that anymore. Things are, are different. And he, de- he, he helps people. And here's what, what we were talking about today. You cannot look at somebody who has bent truth to their perceived reality and go, well, you're not happy. Because you know what? There's a lot of gay couples that are happy. There's a lot of people that are cheating on their spouses that are happy. There's a lot of alcoholics that are happy. There's a lot of people who are cheating on their taxes that are happy. There's a lot of gossips that maybe ain't be sitting in this room that you're happy. But the truth is, you're not fully fulfilled. You're not living life at 100% of the way that God created it to be. Now, here's the tricky thing. You might be at 90% and not even know you're not at 100%. And so people walk around, they go, I'm I'm happy, I'm content. They just don't even know that there's something better. That God's truth, how he's revealed himself to the world, his character, which is how the world functions, will actually give you the most fulfilled life there is. And you know what will happen? And I guarantee it will happen. I almost went a different direction. I almost went a different direction because the moment you start talking about hot topics like homosexuality or abortion or things like that, and you call some things that people are very passionate about, by the, by the way God defines it, people get mad, and they, they, I'm sure there's somebody in here tonight that will never come back. And, I, and I'll, I, I'll probably have a reputation at, at a school tomorrow or parents that goes, oh, he's hateful, he's a bigot. I want you to know, the guy that I talked to today has, has, a, has a young 20-something-year-old guy that's that is homosexual and he has a boyfriend and, and he's trying to process spiritual things. And he said, hey, you know, if you, if you ever think you'd talk to him, I said, I would love to. I don't have an intention of, of talking to the young guy and be like, hey, come in. You're going to hell. You are evil. No. I love him. You know, I, I, as we talk, what I would tell him, God has a better plan for you. God has something that will make your life fantastic. And I want you to experience that. It's about love the same reason why if you do something dumb, hopefully we're going to have the relationship that I'm going to come alongside you and go, hey, that was stupid. You blew it. I'm not telling you to shame you. I'm not telling you to, to make you feel bad. I'm telling you because I love you because God has a better plan when you do things his way. It's about love. But we take truth and we bend it and we go, truth is hard sometimes. And so I don't like the hard truth, so I'm going to bend it to my reality. And what I had to wrestle with even making that statement is this. You know, somebody's going to be offended. My reputation will be, you know, somebody will say something about me that's really not true because of what they interpreted me saying. At the end of the day, 
Paul's willing to go to prison because he wants people to know that truth matters. And I want you to know that truth matters. And then verse 14, Paul says this. He says, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good trust, good, I'm sorry, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here's what he says. Truth matters and it's been given to you and entrusted to you. The character of God has been revealed to you so that you can take care of it and reveal it to others. When you start taking things and start teaching things or start believing things that, that don't match the character of God, you violated the trust that God's given you to speak up for him, to say to a world, there's a better way, to say to people who are hurting and broken, hey, God loves you, and if you will align your life to his truth, you'll see change in your life. doesn't mean it's all going to be sunshine and rainbows and butterflies, but you're going to be walking closer with the God who created you, and it's been entrusted to you. Like Paul tells Timothy, the good deposit's been given to you, and the Holy Spirit's there. That's a good thing. The Holy Spirit's there. He's going to be walking with you. So here's a couple things we take out of this passage. Just a, the what do I do now? One, I'm not going to tell stories about this. Just going to run through them real quick. Throw them up there. One, you've got to decide if you're going to be ashamed of, of truth or not. I'm not. Listen, I'm not talking about going to school and walking up to, you know, the, the, the guy that's, you know, smoking marijuana in the parking lot and walking up to him and going, the Lord judges you, you know, and running away. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say, she's sleeping with her boyfriend. You know, I mean, that, that's not what we're talking about, not being ashamed. But we're talking about when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, why don't you drink? That you don't hem-haw around because you're embarrassed. Because you can say, listen, God has, has changed my life. And the scripture says, that I'm supposed to obey the authorities that God has placed in my life because they're there for my benefit. And the authorities which I'm under say that I, I'm not supposed to drink till I'm 21. So I, I just, I don't drink. I don't go to the parties on Friday night because I, I want to obey God. And I'm not ashamed of that. When somebody goes, I can't believe, I can't believe you, you, you're a virgin. Seriously? Like I can't, I can't, <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's the deal though. Here's what happens. Somebody goes, yeah. And we all giggle, but that makes the point, right? We shouldn't be ashamed. When, when somebody goes, you're a virgin, you'll be like, that's right, I am. I don't care if anybody laughs because God has a better plan for me. Because one day I'm going to get married and I'm not going to wonder if my husband or my wife was with somebody else and is thinking about them on our honeymoon. I don't have to worry about that. I don't care. I mean, we have, Paul says, don't be ashamed. You got, I mean, bless God if somebody goes, yeah. We ought to all be like, yeah. But don't be ashamed of what is true. Second thing is, you can't just not be ashamed. You got to live it. You got to obey the word. Truth is hard. You staying sexually pure till you're married is going to be difficult. You know what? I'll tell you this right now. If that, if that ship sailed for you already, you've already been sexually active. Let me tell you this. You make a decision tonight to go, you know what? Hey, I blew it, I'm gonna, but I'm going to repent, and I want Jesus to change me, and I'm going to be forgiven. Here, let me tell you this. It'll be harder for you to stay sexually pure than somebody else because you know what it's like. It's hard. It's going to be difficult to stay sexually pure to you married, whether you're a virgin now or you've already messed up, and you're going, hey, I'm starting fresh with Jesus, and I'm going to start honoring with him with my life today. You already know how hard it is 
to be the person that, that doesn't go to the party, doesn't go drink. If you do go to the party and you go drink, you know how hard it is to say no. You failed that test and you went because it was hard, right? I mean, we get it. It's, it living God's standard, living the truth is difficult and it won't ever get easier. It won't. Can't be ashamed of it. You gotta obey it. And the third thing is this, you gotta guard that trust. You gotta throw the slide up there. God has entrusted it to you to pass it on to the next. There's some children on a Sunday morning that meet on the floor below us and they're gonna be sixth graders and seventh graders one day and they're gonna look at you. If you're a junior or a senior, there's some sixth graders and seventh graders in this room that are looking at you. And they're looking at how you handle truth. And they're looking to see, can I be faithful to the the, the character of God? And they're looking at some juniors and seniors, and some of them are going, I I don't think it's possible. Because they they failed. They can't do it. How am I going to do it? But then there's some of you, man, that, that are setting an example. You're guarding the trust. You're going, man, I'm living the truth. And some sixth graders, some seventh graders, some eighth graders are going, you know what? I want to be like him. I want to be like her. I want to be faithful to the end. Don't be ashamed. Obey the word and guard the trust. Here's why it's important. And I'm going to close with this story. Some of you heard this story. If you've been on mission trips, this story comes up because our, our young adults like, like to tell it. So if you've heard of this story, forgive me. Several years ago, I went to the Bahamas and, uh, on a mission trip. First trip we were taking in, uh, internationally. So we didn't go to the Bahamas. The Bahamas sounds like a fun mission trip. Everybody's like, yeah, I want to do that. We, we, we went snorkeling one day. The rest of the day, we were not near the ocean. We weren't, we weren't anywhere like the, the touristy spots. Got a group of high schoolers, and as we're going, to the, as we're going out to the ocean, um, the, the, the tour guide that's taking us to the snorkeling place starts giving us the lecture. He's like, hey, when you go into the ocean, I want you to be paired up with partners. You're always going to have a buddy with you at, at all times because quite literally, there are sharks where we're going. So... One person needs to be swimming faster than the other person, so at least one person survives. That's, that's how that works. That's kidding. We said, you got to be together. We had an adult on our, on our, in our group. His name is Jay. Jay's former Air Force Special Forces. He's former Williamson, uh, I mean, Travis County Deputy Sheriff. He's like a man's man. He grew up in California. He told the guys, guys, I grew up surfing. I grew up in the Pacific Ocean. I am like half merman, and I'm telling you, you need to stay paired up because you've got to respect the ocean. It's a, it's a dangerous place. We're like, okay, cool. We get to the snorkeling place. Had the, the tour guide lecture. Had the Jay Willis lecture. We're there getting our snorkels. The guy comes around passing out snorkels. And the guy's like, listen up, teenagers. Stay in pairs at all times. And we're like, got it. Three stories, 10 minutes. We've heard it. We go snorkeling. Lunch comes. I'm counting people off. And I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, six. I get like 17, 18, 19. Like, whatever, we have an even number. Count again, 19. Like, everybody freeze. Don't move. I got to count. 19. I'm like, what? So I get, the, I get the list. I start going through. And I'm going through names. Now, if you're a ninth grader and you come to Clyde Small Groups, you've met Mike Jones. You can tell him I told this story on Sunday morning if he's not listening. Mike Jones is a high schooler at the time. He's not on the beach. He's my odd person out. And I look at his partner, and I'm like, hey, who was Mike's partner? And one guy goes, well, I was his partner, but I wanted to come in, so I switched with this person and that person. Well, I didn't know we switched. And so we're like, well, where is he at? And we start looking out. We have this big rock out in front of us uh, that, the, that the guys already told us don't go anywhere near that rock. It's like razor sharp. 
So this rock kind of makes this little cove, and we're looking at the cove, that's this little bay area, that's where we've been snorkeling, and we don't see him anywhere. I mean, we go, we're like, I'm running down to the other side, past where he's not even supposed to be, and I'm looking. We found some binoculars from some people on the beach. We're looking, we can't find them. I don't know how long this experience lasted, but it felt like for me, the time had begun to stop. I mean, my heart is racing. I'm starting, as the minutes go by, I'm starting to feel like I'm going to throw up. And then we start hearing the screams of a guy screaming at the top of his lungs. It's got up on the rocks. And it wasn't him. Some older dude lost his flippers and was like, I'll go to the rocks. And they blood everywhere. His wife screaming. He's screaming. We've got a lost student. The, the vein in my head, in my temple, like you could see it from 10 yards out, like pulsing, like, you know, bum, bum, bum. And then somebody goes, what's he wearing? Somebody goes, I don't know. They got the binoculars, and they're like, well, there's a guy. Like, it looks like there's a red bathing suit out there. And somebody goes, yeah, yeah, he's wearing it's a bright red bathing suit. Yeah, yeah, we remember. And they look through the binoculars, and this little red butt comes up over the water. They do a little dolphin dives. Jay Willis runs down. This little Bahamian guy in his boat. He jumps in the boat. He takes off out there. He brings Mike back in, and uh, Mike comes walking up. And I'm literally, I'm not kidding you, like, like I, I was afraid I would hurt him. And, and so he's like, walks up, and I said, go sit down in, the, in that picnic booth and don't move. And I'm not lying. It, Lance was there. Lance, I left him there for like two hours. They was playing volleyball. They've gone snorkeling, and he's just sitting at the picnic table. One of my adults comes up and goes, hey, he's been there for like two hours. You, I mean, you, you got to let him get up. And I was like, okay, I can't talk to him because I will still kill him. I will rip his throat out so you can tell him. She goes over and she says, hey, you can get up. So he gets up and he walks directly over, makes a beeline over to me. And I'm like taking a deep breath and I'm like, okay, you know, he's going to apologize. He walks and this is what he says. He goes, I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this. And I went, go sit down at the picnic table and don't move. The lady comes back later, the adult. She's like, why is he back over there? I thought you said he could get up. I tell her story and she's like, well, you know, you can't help stupid, right? You know, for years, like, guys in the back, like, true story, two or three years, right? Lance, Dave would tell you, they would bring that story up just to watch me get mad at Mike, like, four years later. And Mike would be like, stop telling the story. He's going to send me to a picnic table again. And here's why. I had already begun to replay in my mind the phone call that was going to be made. As, as, as I, of calling mom and dad. For years later, I've told the story enough, we've laughed at it, but I'm thinking, I'd get emotional thinking, to call a mom and dad and say, I don't know where your son is. He's, he's drowned. I mean, that, that was what was going, how do I tell a mom and dad that they gave me the most precious thing they have, a child, and they entrusted it to me, and I let it go. It's the most terrible feeling I've ever had. Truth matters. It's a precious commodity. And God has entrusted it to you. Don't let it go. Don't be ashamed to live by the truth. Live it. Guard it. Let's pray and then we're going to close out.